Good morning, everyone. How's everyone today? Good, great. We'll carry on that chat later on. So, uh, so good to be together today. And it was amazing, just prophetic stuff just coming and coming and lots more there that we just didn't have time for in that moment. But um, so, uh, hey, I've got a new toy. I'm preaching from an iPad today. I know, right? I just thought you're all going to notice it at some point, so I'm just going to name it right there, okay? The um, reason I'm doing that is because as I approached 50, I realized that I couldn't really read things anymore. And, and uh, my fellow elders said to me, he said, Dan, it's sometimes important that you actually stick to your notes rather than just make up what is on the spot. So, um, so I thought I could do one or two things. I could buy some reading glasses and do that really annoying thing of just taking them on and off and on and off all the time. But I thought I might get repetitive strain injury if I do that. So I thought, I'm just going to get an iPad and make the writing really, really big. So that's where I'm going today. Anyway, we're, uh, we're doing this brilliant series in, called More Than Conquerors in the book of Joshua. And we're looking at, at uh, characters in the book of Joshua. Um, and the, the book of Joshua is all about the, the conquest of the land of Canaan. God giving the Israelites the promised land in Old Testament times. It's a very militaristic sort of book. The language is very, and some, for, some, for, for those reasons, we find it hard to deal with sometimes. But um, we have, as the church of Jesus worldwide, we have a commission given to us by Jesus called the Great Commission. And we can learn things from the language of Joshua that helps us believe God to take the gospel to the ends of the earth. And it's not a military campaign. It's not forcing people to subscribe it's about sharing the love of Jesus and serving people wherever we go in our day-to-day lives and wherever he calls us to be. So today we're going to look at the character of Caleb. And you might have heard that name. But before we look at him, you might ask yourself the question, well, why are we doing this anyway? Why are we talking about people we don't know and acting like they could be examples to us when we're so different to them? There's a phrase in our culture these days, isn't this? You be you. You do you. As if the answer to all the world's great problems is more of you. (laughs) Or more of me. The Bible gives us this instruction in Hebrews chapter 6. He says, we do not want you to become lazy, but to imit those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. Here's how we get to where we're going. And if you're a follower of Jesus, this is what discipleship of Jesus looks like. It's not more of you being you, other than discovering more of your God-given identity. It's about you becoming more like Jesus. It's about you being different than who you are. I find myself increasingly saying to people who who say to me, they say, well, that's just what I'm like. That's my personality. And I say to them, well, that's not what you're meant to be like. (laughs) Because Jesus is different to you, and he calls us into his likeness. So today, that's what we're doing as we're looking at Caleb. We're going to think, how could we be more like Jesus, as demonstrated in the life of Caleb? And you being you is actually lazy, according to that verse. Faith and patience is what we're aiming for. So Joshua chapter 14 is where we're reading from about Caleb. You can read along. It'll be on the screen behind me. Now the people of Judah approached Joshua out Gilgal, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, said to him, you know what the Lord said to Moses, the man of God at Kadesh Barnea about you and me? 
I was 40 years old when Moses, the servant of the Lord, sent me from Kadesh by near to explore the land. And I brought him back a report according to my convictions. But my fellow Israelites who went up with me made the hearts of the people melt in fear. I, however, followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. So on the day Moses swore to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance and that of your children forever, because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he has said this to Moses while Israel moved about in the wilderness. So here I am today, 85 years old. I'm still as strong today as the day Moses sent me out. I'm just as vigorous to go out to battle now as I was then. Now give me this hill country that the Lord promised me that day. You yourself heard then that the Anakites were there and their cities were large and fortified, but the Lord helping me, I will drive them out just as he said. Then Joshua blessed Caleb, son of Jephunneh, and gave him Hebron as his inheritance. So Hebron has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite, ever since, because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. Hebron used to be called Keriath Arba, after Arba, who was the greatest man among the Anakites. And then the land had rest from war. So let's talk about Caleb today. If you've been a Christian a little while, you might have heard the name Caleb used as an encouragement. You might go to an older believer and you say, you're such a Caleb. You ever heard that? To a young guy, you always say, dare to be a Daniel. Love the young guys. Be radical. So to the older guys, you're such a Caleb. And what do we mean by that? Well, we kind of read it here today that Caleb speaks and acts like somebody who's not 85 years old. He speaks as somebody from a totally different generation, from somebody who sounds like a 20-year-old or a 30-year-old. He doesn't act according to his generational norm. And as we consider this as to be, as it should be, a wonderful encouragement to older believers that God has wonderful things in store and there's still purposes and plans he has for you into the very later years of your life. It's also an encouragement to every generation and every decade of life that we live in that we should never be those people who act according to our generational norms, according to our peers, that Christian lives, faith lives, always look different than our peers. That's what Caleb models, yeah? Got it, good. Um, so um, you, you see that in, in, uh, in, in verse 7 and 8. Caleb, he says, you know what my convictions were. When somebody has convictions, what they're saying is I disagree with everybody else. In Numbers chapter 14, God says this about Caleb. He says, because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. This is what God said about Caleb. Oh, he's different. He's different than the other ones of his era, of his decade, of his generation. Every season of life has challenges and blessings. Apparently, according to research in your 80s, you're less likely to be making long-term futuristic plans and are generally more happy and more contented in life, and a bit less agitated, angry, and passionate. Caleb, on the other hand, he's been waiting for this moment all his life, and he's not going to let it go age 85. He's full of fight. 
my convictions. But let's think about your season of life, your stage of life. Maybe you're a teenager here today. What do teenagers preoccupy with and think about all the time? Well, you're often asking the question, well, who am I? Or comparing yourself to other people, worried what other people think about you. The, The craving and the need for acceptance. In your 20s, you're often obsessed with change, grown-up decision-making, the anxiety that comes with it, navigating changing friendships, perhaps romance, singleness, jobs, careers, changes of place where you live, having to start all over again, lack of time, while still in your mind you're still developing the resilience to cope with all of those massive things. What happens in your 30s and 40s? Well, often you're juggling multiple important priorities, career progression, perhaps aging parents, oftentimes raising dependent children or maintaining friendships. In your 50s and 60s, I've just reached this one. I tell you, it's just like somebody touches a button, which is like, oh, you need to start evaluating your life now. <laughs> it's like, I'm only 50, but you know what happened? I've got two letters. Right, through the post. One was from a pension company saying, not long now, Dan. (laughs) In five years' time, you could be withdrawing your pension. I thought, no, I'm not. (laughs) And then the other one was the NHS testing kit. (laughs) And they said, we'll be sending one of these every two years from now on to the rest of your life. And you're like, what? I'm not ready for this. I'm not ready to reflect on the future and think, but this is what you do in your 50s and 60s. You look back and you think, well, What have I achieved? Because all your big decisions, or many of your big decisions, have probably been made. But you're then, you're in this between zone. You think, well, maybe I feel slightly paralyzed. I'm not ready for the next thing, but I'm not ready to to look back and evaluate yet. In your 60s and 70s, learning a season of change as paid work perhaps comes to an end. And seasons begin to change and uh, health changes. Questions of, will I have enough? Will my loved ones be okay? And in an ageist society, we can battle with the feelings, of well, what's my value around here anyway? I wonder what the challenge of your peer group is. Have a think about that for a moment. What's the thing that people your age think about a lot? What's the conversation that comes up with people your age? Just turn to somebody. Turn to a couple of next to you and say, oh, it's, it's this, isn't it? Just, this is the kind of thing we talk about. Just go for it. You've got like 30 seconds. Brilliant. So um, that's great. Have you managed to simplify that into one sentence? Good. Yeah, good. So uh, you can carry on that conversation afterwards. But here's the question. End that conversation. Okay. Here's here's the question I really want you to ask, and we're not going to do this together, but here's the question I really want you to ask. What would it look like for a Christian to have a different spirit than the culture around them in their generation? In terms of the things that this generation, your generation, worries about, what would it look like for you to be Caleb? 
and to have a different attitude. What does faith and patience look like? Faith and patience look very different in every season. And seasons of life aren't always unique. They overlap and turn around and come back. But perhaps being of a different spirit means risking rejection in a culture that craves acceptance. Maybe it means in a world where everybody is changing and moving and pursuing this dream and that dream, you say, I'm going to stay put. And I'm going to build the church and I'm going to invest here for the long term. I was having a chat with somebody a few weeks ago and they said to me, just a, it was a wonderful challenge. They said, Dan, I love all this chat about church planting and going, but I just want you to know that I just really feel that God wants me to stay here. <laughs> I thought, what a brilliant statement of faith to say, this is what I'm called to do. Or perhaps in time poor seasons of life to keep prioritizing God's kingdom and his house. Or perhaps in slow seasons of life, to not allow discouragement to take a foothold. Or for later years, to believe that God has a plan for your life, like he did for Caleb, that you are useful to God. You know, what a blessing it is to have older believers in our church family. Isn't it wonderful? Do you know, you you won't know this probably if you're an older believer, but you you know how most churches pray for young people to join their church? When we planted Kings, we didn't have any older people at all. Everybody was under the age of 40. And we used to pray again and again and again that God would give us some older saints, some older believers to join us. And wonderfully, he has. If you're here and you're in in what you'd consider a, a later stage of life, you are an answer to prayer. And you know, families, you need the old and you need the young. You need brothers and sisters and mums and dads and children. We need the full demographic. And sometimes as the younger ones of us work through progressive seasons of life with all of its anxieties and challenges and unknowns, sometimes you just want a friendly face where somebody says to you, you'll get through it. (laughs) Everybody does. It's okay. What a blessing to a family to have older saints who love Jesus but are freed from the need of status and position and just want to love Jesus and model family and be an example who see each day and each year as a gift to do that. Let me say to you, if you're in that stage of life as well, well done. Because you'll know, if you've been a Christian for decades, you'll know that many of your peers didn't make it. They fell away. They stopped believing. They stopped coming to church. They got busy with other stuff. Yet here you are. You're still holding on. You're still believing. You're still encouraging. God says to you, a massive well done. So Caleb, age 85, should we go back a few years? I feel feel like we need to, don't we? Age 40, here we go, Numbers chapter 12. This is after Moses had sent 12 spies, 12 leaders into the promised land to go and explore and to report back some data so that they could go into the land forthwith and just get on with the job God had given them to do. They came back. And verse 27 says, they gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it does flow with milk and honey. Here is its fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified are very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. They were big people. The Amalekites live in the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites live in the hill country. And the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. It's full. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, 
We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack those people, they're stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All the people we saw there were of great size. We saw the Nephilim there. Um, Goliath was one of the Nephilim. We saw the Nephilim there. The descendants of Anak come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. I don't know how they knew this. We looked the same to them. Twelve people sent to look in the promised land and bring back a report to Moses. Ten of them fail. Two of them, Joshua and Caleb, say, we should get on with this. You know, this is only two years into their wilderness wanderings, two years after they'd left Egypt, and God was saying, it's time to go in. It's not going to happen for another 38 years because of these 10 people who just say, well, it can't be done. God's not pleased when he says, well, we're going to wait for another generation to come. Faith people will always find themselves at odds with unbelieving people. If you're going to grow as somebody who follows Jesus, you'll find yourself at times in your life where you're at odds, often with people who say they love Jesus. We see a huge amount of anxiety being expressed in these verses by those who don't believe it can be done. Anxiety, according to Steve Cuss, anxiety spreads in groups. And often the most anxious person or people in the room hold the most power. Therefore, it takes a huge amount of courage for Caleb, age 40, as everybody's just adding their bit into the story to say why it can never be done. For Caleb to say, well, uh, it can. It can. Hear what you're saying. It's so easy when you're in a room full of people and, and somebody starts getting, expressing anxiety, everybody chips in, and before you know it, everybody feels really anxious and worried. I remember being in a pastor's group once, and there was about three, three or four of us sitting together. And there was one guy, and he, he was being particularly negative. And, you know, just nobody ever becomes Christians, and, and, you know, it doesn't really work, and everything is just getting smaller, and it's not... And my friend, Malcolm, who, who leads another church in Edinburgh, after about five minutes of this, he just said, he said do, you, do you mind if I just bus in here? He says... I don't think this is helping. <laughs> he said, I believe God can do all of the things that you're saying he doesn't do. He said, this is really not helping me to be around here. <laughs> and and everyone, it, just, it just popped the bubble in the room because everybody else was feeling like, oh, yeah, just sympathize. And, you know, just, oh, yeah, it is bad. It's really hard, isn't it? And, but, you know, my friend, he just lifted the mood in a moment by saying, God can. Who will be the person who when everybody else is feeling anxious says, I think we should pray. Who will be that man or woman who says, let's bring it to God because God can do anything. If you want to be a Caleb when you're 85, make a decision when you're 40. And if you want to be a person of faith like Caleb age 40, make a decision when you're 30 or 20 or 18 or 16 or 12. And be prepared for long seasons of waiting in your life as you wait for God to bring things to pass. So we've got to know Caleb, age 85, age 40. We're going backwards here, okay? So let's, let's, let's go. Do you know what his, his full name is? We read it in the, in the verses. He's called Caleb 
the son of Jephunneh, the Kenizzite. That's helpful, isn't it? This tells us that Caleb's family weren't descendants of Abraham. The family of Israel had descended from Abraham, but then at times others had joined themselves to it. So this family, Caleb's family, at some point in their history, had moved to Egypt before the Exodus, and they'd observed the lives of the Israelites and the God they worshipped, and they'd decided, we don't want to worship our idols anymore. We want to align ourselves to Yahweh, to God, to the God of the Israelites. We're going to become Israelites. And they changed their life. And here's the implication it had for them. They were slaves in Egypt along with all the Israelites. Such was the value that they put on what they had found. We don't know at what point Caleb was born into the family's faith journey. Perhaps they learned as family all, all together the ways of God, or perhaps his parents and grandparents repeatedly shared their testimony of turning to the true God with him. But I'll tell you this about Caleb. He does come across as somebody who seems pretty delighted to be a believer. And some of you here are new Christians. Some of you here have only been a Christian maybe a few months, and you're just still full of wonder that every time you come to church, it's amazing, it's great, it's fascinating. You're learning all of the time. You know, you're such a wonderful gift to the church because you're full of freshness and you're seeing things in fresh ways that perhaps others have taken for granted. But you might have been born into a Christian home. You might be the 10th in a line of Christian generations. And you might not recognize the value of what you have. The Bible says that your faith is of greater worth than gold. God doesn't want us to lose that sense of privilege. Somebody once said that Christians must learn to preach the gospel to themselves every day. And uh, if, if you feel that sense of lack of joy and wonder and privilege at being a Christian, the author Jerry Bridges makes this comment on preaching yourself to the gospel. He says what it means. I'll just read a bit of it. He says, to preach the gospel to yourself then means that you continually face up to your own sinfulness and then flee to Jesus through faith in his shed blood and righteous life. It means that you appropriate again and again by faith the fact that Jesus fully satisfied the law of God, that he's your sacrifice of atonement, that God's holy wrath is no longer directed towards you. To preach the gospel to yourself means that you take at face value the precious words of Romans 4, Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. It means that you believe on the testimony of God, that therefore there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. It means that you believe he forgave all your sins and now presents you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Turning to the Old Testament, to preach the gospel to yourself means that you appropriate by faith the words of Isaiah 53 verse 6 that we all like sheep have gone astray, each of us turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It means you dwell upon the promise that God has removed your transgressions from you as far as the east is from the west, and he has blotted out your transgressions and remembers your sin no more. It means you realize that all these wonderful promises of forgiveness are based upon the atoning death of Jesus. 
It's the death of Christ through which he satisfied the justice of God and averted from us the wrath of God that is the basis of all God's promises of forgiveness. This is the important bit. We must be careful that in preaching the gospel to ourselves, we do not preach a gospel without a cross. We must be careful that we do not rely on the so-called unconditional love of God without realizing that his love can only flow to us as a result of Christ's atoning death. Isn't that amazing? When we take the cross for granted, we become ungrateful people. And the Israelites became ungrateful people. And those 10 leaders represented huge swathes of the population in Israel who just didn't understand the sense of privilege of being saved by God. They literally thought that going back to be slaves in Egypt was better than trusting God to lead them across the water in front of them and into the promised land. We see Caleb's privilege, but we also see his passion. Um, the name Caleb, if you're interested in names that mean things, uh, they were into this very much in biblical times. Caleb means faithful, wholehearted, and loyal. It's a good name. It also means dog. <laughs> and those two things aren't unrelated. <laughs> because if you're going to pick a pet who's going to be faithful, reliable, and loyal, you're not going to pick a cat, are you? <laughs> no, they're just in it for themselves. But dogs, you know, it says about dogs, it says the science confirms that most dogs actively choose proximity to humans, and within a few months of being born, a puppy's attraction is clearly directed towards people rather than other dogs. Dogs exhibit varying degrees of separation anxiety when their humans temporarily leave them. Blood pressure rates in dogs lower when being stroked by humans. Dogs are fiercely protective of their owners. It's not wrong to call Caleb an old dog. <laughs> he is so faithful. He is so loyal to his master. It's unthinkable for Caleb that he should not do his master's bidding. You know what makes a good day for a dog? It's when you get a tennis ball and you throw it. And it goes and gets the ball and brings it back and just waits for you to do it again. Well, I feel like Caleb had that sort of personality. I think when Moses says to the 12 spies, and he says, go, go and get some fruit from the land, I think Caleb is halfway across the River Jordan before Moses has finished to fetch the fruit. According to tradition, um, it's not in the Bible, but according to Jewish tradition, the other spies, they found these enormous bunches of grapes and fruit, and they were going to take them back to Moses, and, and they said, let's not take them back. Let's not tell Moses about the fruit, because it's a disaster mission anyway. It'll only encourage him. Caleb, Caleb had to use gentle reinforcement, perhaps with a sword, apparently, to say they were going back to the master with the fruit. You see... Caleb was fiercely loyal. That's what his brand of faith looked like. We speak in derogatory terms about yes people in our culture. People who just go along with things and say yes. We talk a lot about, oh, no, no, you should push back, you should resist, you should make your cause. And perhaps in a sinful world where there's much to go wrong. Accountability and, and holding things to account is so important. 
But let me say this, that we will never grow into maturity as Christians unless we say yes to God again and again and again and again. And if every time God throws the tennis ball, unless we learn to go and retrieve it and bring it back to him again and again, we will never come into the promises he has for us. Corrie Ten Boom said, don't bother to give God instructions, report for duty. The mother of Jesus, Mary, said in John 4, just do whatever he tells you. Do you know what the best day for a dog is? Next slide, please, John. (laughs) It's when you get multiple opportunities to do it again and again and again and again. Ephesians 5 gives this encouragement to Christians. It says, find out what pleases the Lord. Find out what pleases the Lord. Find out what God loves and do it again and again and again. I remember being a new believer. Some of you are new believers. And I remember just going along to church and people starting to talk to me about fellowship and, and being around God's people. And, and my youth leader, Ray, he said to me, he said, so Dan, we've got youth fellowship on a, fri- on, on a Wednesday night. We've got youth social on a Friday night. We've got church twice on a Sunday morning and evening. We've got youth coffee after church on Sunday. And we've got the youth drama group on a Thursday night. And I was like, yes. I did all of it. It was crazy. I don't know how I managed to get any schoolwork done or anything. But I did all of these things because I wanted to say yes to God. Because that's how you grow as a Christian. I remember when somebody unpacked the verses on baptism in the Bible with me. I'd been christened as a baby. But I came to an understanding that, well, somebody said, well, I think God wants you to get baptized based on what the scriptures say. And I was just like, well, yes. I'm not going to overthink this one. If that's what God wants, I'm going to do it. I remember when somebody shared with me about the, the Bible's teaching on giving and, and saying, well, the principle of tithing, giving a tenth of your income. It wasn't hard for me. They say, well, if that's what God wants, it's a yes. I don't need to overthink these things. The hardest bit back then was you, you had to fill in a paper standing order form and present it to your bank. I mean, how easy is it now to say yes to God compared to those dark days? Consider what pleases the Lord. And this is so liberating for us. If, let, let's just say, let's go with this. If really your whole life as a Christian is about just saying yes to God when he asks you to do stuff, that takes a lot of pressure off, doesn't it? If you're in your 20s and early 30s, I'm told that is the most stressful decision-making season of your life because of all the big, big decisions that you're making. Now, It might reassure you and help you to know that there's only two decisions that Caleb made in the Bible that we know about. I'm sure his life was full of decisions that he had to make. There's only two that actually mattered. (laughs) One when he was age 40 and one when he was age 85. That's to say that many of the things that you think are important or the world says are important decisions probably aren't. And actually only time will tell. But then maybe there's another pressure with that, which is, well, how do I know what are the big decisions? How do I know? You know, I remember Julie and I and the family, we've just had an amazing holiday. We went uh, to India to visit a children's home, an orphanage, where Julie became a Christian when she was 18 years old. And through this amazing testimony, Julie had never read a Bible, never been to church in her life, but went to this very Christian kids' home where they taught her about Jesus and she became a Christian. And Julie was reflecting with the leaders at home. She said, it's just amazing. She said, 
I just can't believe it because I said, unless I'd come here, I wouldn't have become a Christian. If I hadn't become a Christian, I wouldn't have met Dan. If I hadn't met Dan, then these wouldn't be our children. And everything's changed because of what didn't even seem like a very big decision at the time. How do we safeguard decision-making? Because we're all making decisions all the time. How do we know what are the big decisions? We don't. I wish they had neon lights above them saying, this is going to be a really big one. Get this one right. Put all your energy into this one. It doesn't happen that way. What's the safeguard? Well, Caleb really helps us. Caleb was never commended for his decision-making, but for something else. We've read these verses already, but let's read them again. Joshua 14, verse 9. Moses said to me, the land on which your feet have walked will be your inheritance for your children because you have followed the Lord my God wholeheartedly. Joshua 14, 14. So Hebron has belonged to Caleb, son of Jephunneh the Kenazite, ever since because he followed the Lord, the God of Israel, wholeheartedly. Numbers 14, verse 24. But because my servant Caleb has a different spirit and follows me wholeheartedly, I will bring him into the land he went to and his descendants will inherit it. Deuteronomy 1, verse 35. No one... Uh, he will see it and I will give him and his descendants the, the land he, he set his feet on because he followed the Lord wholeheartedly. Anybody spot the common word? <laughs> we think it's about strategy and decision making. God says it's about wholeheartedness. It's about giving all of our thinking and decision making to him. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, which even now is a massive worldwide charity, one of the biggest in the world, and an amazing church movement uh, historically. Um, it started by a couple, William and Catherine Booth, in the 1800s in London. And somebody asked William Booth at the end, of his life, what, what, what's the secret? It's just been a, a runaway success in terms of spread and effectiveness. And he said, I'll tell you the secret. God has had all there was of me. There have been men with greater brains than I, and even with greater opportunities. But from the day I got the poor of London on my heart and caught a vision for what Jesus could do with my life, on that day I made up my mind that God would have all of William Booth there was. And if there's anything of power in the Salvation Army, it's because God has had all the adoration of my heart, all the power of my will, and all the influence of my life. It's about wholeheartedness. And to wrap up, but let me ask you four questions. Four W's. Ask these of yourself. Where am I? What season of life am I in? And what does it look like for me to live in a different spirit? for the glory of Jesus. You don't need to be super spiritual about that. Just look, learn what the value set of somebody in your stage of life looks like who follows Jesus rather than what the generation worries about. Here's the second W, wholeheartedness. Pursue wholehearted devotion to Jesus. Find out the things that help you prioritize him in your life. Make decisions to prioritize God's priorities. Your biggest decision making in life will be greatly helped by this. 
Thirdly, learn to wait well. Caleb's life was full of waiting, decades sometimes. We think effectiveness is all about productivity. God will bring us through sometimes decades of waiting to bring us into the place he's called us to be. That's not failure. Caleb learned that. He learned to navigate delays and disappointments well. He'd witnessed the death of Moses, the only leader he'd ever known. He'd fallen out quite substantially with 10 other leaders of his generation because he just could not agree with what they said. You know, it hurts. It hurts, doesn't it? When you've walked with people. If you've been a Christian any length of time, you'll know this. You've walked with people and you've had fellowship and you've prayed together and you've encouraged each other. And then things change and you think, well, they're not. They're not even following God anymore. Those that we carry those things, they hurt us. Sometimes they get to us. But when we trust God with those things, we learn to navigate the disappointments well and the delays. These are the things that make, not break, the child of God. And fourthly, worship. Said in verse 10 of chapter 14 that we read, uh, Caleb said, Now then, just as the Lord promised, he has kept me alive for 45 years since the time he has said this to Moses. Here was Caleb. In the West, we see life as an entitlement. In the Bible, they saw it as a gift. And here's Caleb. He said, well, God seems to have kept me alive, so he must have a plan. Here's what we do as believers. We give every day and every decade as a gift to God. We say, Lord, well, you've kept me alive. Thank you. How do you want to use me? How can I worship you? Enjoy it. Use it. Whether your life is another day or another decade, make it for Jesus. Okay, let's, um, let's pray together. I'm just going to read the words of Hebrews 12 as we come to him. It says, Therefore, Since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. If you're weary, if you've lost heart in any degree today, it's good news. Because when we consider Jesus, and when we throw off what hinders, and when we repent and turn away from sin that has entangled us, we find the most rewarding experience we can ever have a relationship with God so let's respond to him